Welcome to the St Albans podcast, bringing you news, views and reviews for the city and district of St Albans. I'm here at the Abbey Theatre uh, in uh, the setting of, of Verulamian Park, uh, beautiful surroundings, uh, and uh, I'm here talking to Tina Swain, who is the, well, amongst other things, is the director of The Incident Room, which is the latest offering from the Company of Ten at the Abbey Theatre on from the 24th of February to the 4th of March, he says, reading her notes. Um, so, <laughs> hello, Tina. Hello, Danny. Hi. Uh, so, well, I mentioned there, first of all, that, you know, amongst other things, um, you're the director of this. You, you do have have you, you do wear many hats at this theatre don't you yes i do i'm the uh, the theatre manager as well uh, but my responsibilities in directing are obviously as far as possible entirely separate so i do that as a member of the company of 10 uh, in the same way that i act um, or uh, very occasionally do some backstage work for them as well so okay uh, and uh, and so we have this play come up the incident room I tell you what, let's start by saying what is it? Tell us about The Incident Room. Okay, so The Incident Room is a play about the police investigation into the Peter Sutcliffe murders. Uh, it's the, the Yorkshire Ripper. The Yorkshire Ripper, yes, the so-called Yorkshire Ripper. So that title, which was given um, by the media at the time, uh, is a, a, a description that has fallen out of favour and, and links the victims very firmly to Jack the Ripper and those murders. And it's something that the particularly the survivors and the families of the victims have been trying to get away from uh, to try and uh, reclaim the identities of the women who were the victims of Peter Sutcliffe. And that is really what the play is about, largely. It's not about the murders. It's certainly not and it goes, doesn't go into any gory details. There's no description really of the murders themselves. So people shouldn't be afraid that they're going to be shocked or overwhelmed by uh, gruesome details. Okay. It is about the police investigation. And for those who may not know, this was this was a notorious um, uh, spree that was the late 70s? Late 70s. So from about 1975 until he was finally arrested in 1981. So it was over a period of years. Wow. Although there are other attacks and murders that preceded that period uh, where there are suggestions that it was clearly linked it was the same um mo if you like so okay. yes so, so tina why this play what drew you to this play to and what made you think i want to direct this the play was chosen by uh, angela stone who is the production executive who selected the plays for this season and when the description came out she saw it in edinburgh at the edinburgh festival uh, so it is a modern play it was written in 2019, 2020, and performed in Edinburgh th that year. Uh, and she saw it there and she was absolutely, it was the one play that she said she wouldn't compromise on having in the season um, if she could possibly help it. So it was, it was her play of choice for, the, for our season. And when I read it, I was really moved by the fact that the women's stories are told in a way that makes them real, especially by the end of the play, it's incredibly moving the way they are seen as people, not just as victims. Okay. And that was important to me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so this play kind of, yeah, it, it, it stood out to somebody else. Yes. They chose it. And then when you read it, you could see what they, what yes. they were excited about. So I was born and brought up in Manchester um, and 
uh, moved away in 1975, so just as the case was really coming to prominence. So I wasn't aware of it at that time, but I did have a lot of friends who were at university in the north of England in the late 70s, and we kept in touch. And through their their letters, because it was in the days of handwritten letters, (laughs) um, through their letters, I was very aware of their fears um, their anxieties, but also the growing anger among, particularly among the the quite active feminist student population, mm. uh, where they felt they were being punished for the crimes that were being committed by a man. They were being told they couldn't go out alone at night, they couldn't walk alone. They were putting themselves in danger. They were making themselves a target, um, which seemed at the time to be. Um, to many people seem to be reasonable, but now with hindsight seems to be completely the wrong thing, that women were put under curfew um, rather than, uh, and punished. Um, People were picked up on the street, people who were um, believed to be soliciting or known prostitutes were picked up on the street and arrested because a man was committing murders and targeting the, the particularly certain vulnerable females, whether they were prostitutes or just women alone. He didn't differentiate. Um, I mean, one would hope that in many ways we've moved on from from that culture and that that mindset. But at the same time, there is still an element of victim blaming that goes on, particularly in in crimes of this nature, where there is something that sometimes could be said about about the person's profession, about uh, their lifestyle, about their clothing, which somehow is to blame. And so in some ways, we haven't really moved on at all. No, um, the play starts in 1977 with the fifth victim, uh, Jane MacDonald, who was a 16-year-old schoolgirl when she was murdered. Um, And one of the opening remarks by the senior police investigating officer is that she was an innocent now an innocent girl has been murdered Uh, and one of the quotes at the time which really struck me quite powerfully was there were no innocent victims because there were no guilty victims Uh, and that for me was was quite important that we should portray that the sense that a woman was somehow more uh, likely to be murdered or more um, more vulnerable because she was uh, assumed by the police to be a certain type of woman, and there's quite a number of the of the um, characters comment on that aspect of it. So, what sort of themes are you exploring through the play? Uh, we don't want to dwell too much on the idea of police incompetence. None of the police officers involved in the case wanted to fail. And I think that's really important that we shouldn't see, we shouldn't demonise them, we shouldn't see them as being, um, uh, as as not wanting to succeed in catching this this murderer. But there were so many uh, opportunities that were missed because of really two things, I suppose: uh, an entrenched attitude towards women. Uh, whether they were victims of crime or they were police colleagues. So female police officers were treated as uh, less likely to understand the complexities of investigating a murder case. Uh, But also the uh, 
the misleading information where they followed a particular line of inquiry. Uh, so we all have heard or heard of the Wearside Jack tape with a Geordie accent who claiming to be the, uh, the murderer, which of course was just a complete red herring something that the police followed because they were so desperate to solve it and it took them off at a tangent and made them ignore clues that were really significant um, reports and witness statements that could have led them to the murderer. But also the vast amount of paperwork. We're looking at a time before computerised records, so literally you had to cross-reference uh, index files and filing cabinets and um, witness statements which were all recorded on paper and filed on paper. Mm. So there's a really interesting moment in the play which really happened where the floor of the incident room actually creaks and shakes and threatens to collapse because of the sheer weight of paperwork in the incident room at the time in the later stages of the case. So, so tell us about the setting of the play. Of course. I'm guessing the clue's in the title. The clue is in the title, yes. It is set in the incident room uh, and the Playwrights say in the introduction that even when it moves outside um, for the odd scene, it is still very much there's one foot in the incident room at all times. And the main character, Meg Winterburn, who is, uh, was uh, one of the first women to become a, an inspector with the West Yorkshire Police, she was the person who um, led the day-to-day -day inquiries and investigations. So she wasn't in charge because she was a woman at that point. In the 70s, she would not have been promoted to senior investigating officer. But she was a sergeant um, and she was the person who led the, the inquiry in, in all its real day-to-day -day investigations. Um, she is our point of view, if you like, um, into the action, into the, the investigation, into what happens in the incident room. We step out from time to time, we visit, uh, very salubrious, the ladies' toilets at the Mecca Ballroom um, in Bradford, where one of, one of the scenes takes place. But she says, Meg says, as part of her, um, uh, one of the flash-forwards of the play, that she never, she feels like she never left the incident room. She's always there, she's always reliving the case, always wishing it could have turned out differently, always wishing she'd followed leads to reach the, the culprit sooner before more women were murdered. And uh, is Meg a, a real-life character? Yes, she is. Uh, when uh, Peter Sutcliffe died um, during Covid, uh, actually, of, of complications from COVID. She was interviewed on ITV, and you can find that interview, and she is a real person. She's one of the very few characters in the play who is still alive, uh, but all the characters are either real people or, in the case of Tish Morgan, who is the journalist, represents all the and they were small in number, but all the women journalists who followed the case from the beginning. So one of the journalists who went on from the Yorkshire Post to the Sunday Times, as our character of Tish does, was actually turned away from one of the press conferences in Manchester because they said the prostitute's press conference was earlier. They thought because she was a woman, she must inevitably have been turning up for the press conference, which was briefing women um, about their own safety, rather than a journalist turning up to find out about the investigation. And it's shocking to us now yeah. to hear that kind of preconceived and, and very misogynistic um, attitudes that existed in the police force. We see them on 
um, television programmes that we might watch today, um, Inspector George Gently, um, some of the, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the programme, but the, the um, uh, Helen Mirren prime, prime suspect, suspect, but the, the, the prequels to that. Um, so all of those programmes really illustrate that and how very few people reacted in a shocked way in the 60s and 70s to those attitudes that now seem to us just unacceptable and, and reprehensible, really. The thing that highlighted it for me in particular was the, the BBC series Life on Mars, where the, the character from is it the modern-day yeah. police officer ended, yes. woke up in the 70s. Yes. Now, it was done with a bit more of a, a light touch, mm. but it, it really did show some of the things mm. that, that, that aren't great about the attitudes that were around in society and within institutions such as the police at that time and how difficult it might have been for a woman, for, for, a, for an officer of colour, for, for other such people. Uh, and, and yes, there, there was very much a prevailing attitude sometimes that if the, if the victim was a woman, did she ask for it in some way, which yes. you, you, you would hope these days would, would just be you know, completely abhorrent, but, but sometimes you feel it's still there a little bit. We would hope so. Obviously, there are resonances with cases that are in the news at the moment. So Sarah Everard... Um, and um, uh, Sabina Nessa, uh, but also some of the cases that we've heard which haven't involved individual women or murders or attacks, but have been about attitudes of the police on WhatsApp groups, uh, circulating uh, images uh, and, uh, and discussing things that are, are just so misogynistic and, and real representation of, of attitudes, sexual harassment. Um, you know, the, the police officers who took photographs of the bodies of uh, the two women who were murdered, the two sisters who were murdered, um, it, those attitudes are, are just... We, we can hardly believe that they happen, but they still do. Mm. You know, that a serving police officer who should have been arrested for exposing himself to women in the days immediately before the murder of Sarah Everard, that he was allowed to continue. That there were, David Carrick, that there were no checks on um, his background, that he should never have been allowed to become a police officer. We're not talking about that kind of extreme in this case. We're talking about uh, police officers who were competent if not um, sensitive to the women um, whose attacks and murders they were investigating. Okay. Um, on a different tack, what, um, what experience are you hoping that audience members will come away with for, from, from, you know, how, how do, what, what is your aim for them as they walk out? What, what sort of things would you like to hear them saying as they come out, that sort of thing? I'm hoping that they will understand that the police were doing the best they could with the resources they had at the time, but that if they had not become sidetracked through um, a desperation to solve the case, a desperation that was obviously the result of media, public and political pressure to find the murderer, um, that they might have been more successful. Um, I'm hoping also that people will come away having recognised that the women who were attacked and murdered were people, mm. uh, were not just, you know, they had lives. Um, they would have gone on to have lives if it were not for the fact that they were murdered. So their murders were very violent, very public, but they had ordinary private lives, everyday lives, 
uh, that were cut short. And I think that through a series of flash-forwards over the course of the play, um, flash-forwards to 1981 when Peter Sutcliffe was finally arrested as a result of um, a, a standard uniformed officers stopping him and discovering that his car had false number plates. It was nothing to do with the murders that caused him to be brought, finally arrested and, and brought in. Um, but that people should understand these flash-forwards show a perspective on the women, uh, right through to one flash-forward towards the end of the play, where we actually move into the 2000s, where Meg Winterburn tells another officer working on the case about the fact that they finally found um, John Humble, who was Wearside Jack, uh, who created the tapes and the letters that led the police astray. And the final scene in which one of the survivors because there were a number of survivors of attacks. Uh, one of the survivors, Maureen Long, who is, again, a real person, um, reflects on what those women's lives might have been like. So she and Meg, in the epilogue to the play, have a very brief opportunity to reflect on the women's lives and how they were just ordinary people who fell victim to um, a, a murderer who who in the end seemed to perhaps want to be caught, but certainly who was um, committing murders over a period of time um, and who seemed to be... Um, the police seemed to be unable to tie up all the threads of the inquiry to reach him. He came... He, he, his name came up in several of those um, threads of the investigation, so the investigation into tyre tracks that were left at scenes of crime, the investigation into tracing a new £5 note that um, uh, was given to one of the victims, um, the uh, investigation into police, uh, into cars appearing in red light districts on more than one occasion. Peter Sutcliffe's name came up in all of those investigations, but because it was different teams investigating, there was never a moment at which all those people, uh, all, all those officers had that eureka moment where they realised that one person cropped up in all those cases. Okay. Other than the um, junior officer, Andy Laptu, who wrote a report um, about... Um, 1979 wrote a report handed it over and it was dismissed because it was at the height of the um, tape and letter uh, publicity. The police spent a million pounds which in the late 1970s was a huge amount of money on publicising the tape and the letters so they weren't prepared to accept that someone who had been interviewed who had a Yorkshire accent might actually be the murderer. So Andy Laptew handing over his report in 1979, if it had been taken seriously, at least three women's lives could have been saved. Wow. Okay, uh, so with the, the production, we're recording at the moment and I think we're a week away from preview That's night. right, yes. So, so what, what's happening now in, in, in terms of, <laughs> like, you know, the, the final preparations, rehearsals... Of course, uh, yes. Dress rehearsals. Can you tell yeah. us what happens next yes. week? Of course, yes. So we will have the... Um, 
technical. There's some sort of rubbish lorry outside, oh, yes. but it, no, we'll it, keep going. become very noisy. They're about to empty our glass recycling, so <laughs> yes. So we're about to have a costume call tonight where we'll see all the costumes and then we'll have a rehearsal of the second act or the second half of the play. Um, on Friday night, we'll have our full technical rehearsal. It's a very tech-intensive production. There are over 50 sound cues, there are probably nearly as many projection cues, there are certainly many more lighting cues. So we have um, a, a lot to be integrated into the act. The actors have been rehearsing since December and they are all really on board with their characters. They've spent quite a lot of time doing background research on those, watching uh, documentaries, um, listening to interviews, reading books. <laughs> yeah, it's live theatre, folks. Uh, uh, reading books and articles about the people that they're playing. Okay. Uh, and yes, so, so one week beforehand. Uh, and am I right in thinking that the way, the way it works in the theatre is that at some point you as the director hand over to the stage manager uh, and then yes. all you can do is watch? Yes, that's right. So that will be on uh, after Sunday's rehearsal where it's handed over after the, the dress rehearsal and the stage manager then takes over and is fully responsible for everything that happens after that. Uh, in theory, from that point on, any notes that I want to give have to go through the stage manager. Uh, and, it, you know, it's relinquishing control of something that you've lived with for the last six months. Handing and that's over always, your baby. Yes, it's always difficult. So the play opens uh, to the public on the 24th of February and it runs through to the 4th of March. Uh, and uh, people can get tickets in a variety of ways, can't they? Yes, so you can book online at abbeytheatre.org.uk. Uh, and um, book for on, book your your seats because it is in the main theatre, so it is reserved seating. Uh, you can phone the box office between nine thirty and twelve noon Monday to Friday on oh one seven two seven eight five seven eight six one, or you can call into the box office uh, during those hours as well and speak to a real person at a real counter and book real tickets. You can even have them printed out and take away with you. Okay, thank you for that, uh, and. Um... And I guess people should probably think to book quickly because uh, it, you know, often your plays actually sell out, don't they? Certainly in the studio recently, we've had a number of sell-out performances. The main theatre holds 230 people, so there's a little bit more opportunity. But the Sunday matinee is certainly going well. What we found, obviously, particularly since COVID, is people do leave it later and later to book. But it would be great to have uh, good audiences for a main stage production. And the actors certainly do deserve it because they've put in a lot of hard work, as have my fantastic technical team. Uh, we've got original props. We've got um, items on hire from the uh, Police Historical Society over in Stanborough, who have loaned us quite a lot of material. And lots of people have lent us quantities of paperwork, files, filing cabinets to populate the stage and make it a real 1970s office environment. Wonderful stuff. Um, and for those who are coming to see the show as well, um, there's been things in the news recently about parking, but am I right in thinking that, that whatever has been decided won't impact this, that doesn't come until a bit later in the year? I understand that that may come into force in April. So at the moment, uh, parking is free from 6.30, so you can 
come and park down here. You could go and have something to eat at one of the local restaurants and then come back for the performance starting at eight o'clock. Um, suggest being here at about quarter to eight. And we do have a very good bar, uh, coffee and ice cream served at the intervals. But also Sunday, if you come to the matinee, you will have to pay for parking because the parking charges do apply on a Sunday afternoon. Okay. And the play is approximately two hours plus a 20-minute interval. Right. And uh, you, you mentioned the bar there. Um, a friend who came to the theatre recently thought that the, the prices were so reasonable, he said it was almost like drinking in the 70s. So maybe that's uh, <laughs> that, that's some sort of th- it's fitting um, way of thinking about the bar with regard to the setting of the play as well. Uh, and we will have a special Yorkshire Ale that our bar manager has acquired in keeping with the, the uh, setting of the play itself. Oh, so. wonderful. Well, uh, Tina, thank you so much for sh- uh, spending time talking to me about this. The incident room's on from the 24th of February to the 4th of March. Find out more at abbeytheatre.org.uk. The links will also be in the episode description of this uh, podcast as well. But thank you very much. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for listening to this edition of the St Albans Podcast with Danny Smith. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or a podcast platform of your choice. This will help us reach more listeners. Join us, the St Albans Podcast, next Wednesday for more news, views and reviews. In the meantime, commit no nuisance. Produced by Samantha Rolfe. Logo and artwork by David Ellis. This is an independent production in association with the Hearts Advertiser. If you would like to become a community partner or a sponsor of the podcast, please visit stalbanspodcast.com for more details.